0: Dangerous generosity. So just to reiterate, we have been preaching on dangerous generosity since, I think we started this series when we were meeting at Embassy Suites, right? Dangerous generosity. We've had different facets of this. And lately, we've been looking at those three components of our vision statement, the kinds of Christians we're seeking to form ourselves into here at Marine Covenant Church, heart, head, and hand, or inspired, intelligent, heart, head, and hands, inspired, intelligent, and involved. And we've taken four weeks on each of those, th- those aspects of the vision statement in the context of dangerous generosity. So dangerous generosity, generosity of heart. And then we had a section intellectual generosity. How is that dangerous for us? Uh, dangerous in a, in a good way. And then more recently, the idea of hands, generous hands, practicing that generosity, generous doings or doing, Generously, And this sermon concludes that last section. Now, we've got more planned for you, so we're not going to quit preaching. But this finishes up that official series, and then we're going to go some other really exciting directions. I've entitled this message, Practicing Acts of Extreme Rebellion. Because when a church is all a church is supposed to be, all that Christ intended for his church to be, she is one rebellious character. She stands against what needs to be opposed. We have uh, seen hands of rebellion raised in many different forms in our times. And uh, some of the signals that those hands have offered have been seen as rebellious signals, speaking of rebellious hands. We have the peace sign. Uh, You know, the... Just the V, it's meant all sorts of things at different times of history, and it means something different now than it did when I was a child of the 60s and 70s. Because in in the 60s and 70s, during the heat of the Vietnam War, this was actually a sign of rebellion, wasn't it? Against the government and against that war. Let's have peace, not war, which is always a good idea. We have currently this movement of tattooing the hands. Artistic expressions of rebellion. This particular work, this series of works, is designed to focus on the statement of rebellion against slavery and in particular oppression of women. Unlock us, unchain us, unfetter us. Tattooed hands uh, is a way of expressing some rebellious acts, some rebellious thinking. You have the infamous black power fist. So if you're a child of the 60s and 70s, you saw this raised often and you certainly know about it no matter how old you are. Probably the most famous or infamous, depending on how you view it, expression of that black power fist was really a sign not of black power but of unity. Let's unite in protest against the oppression that we're feeling in America as what we we now refer to blacks as African-Americans. Then it was not at all offensive to call that community the black community. And African-American track athletes Tony Smith and John Carlish, remember this? They won the gold and the bronze respectively, but when they got on the platform, they protested not the winning of the gold and the bronze, but they wanted to use that public forum to protest the injustice that they and their people were experiencing here uh, in America. That was in Mexico City in 1968. That hand, those hands raised in protest. They actually dressed uh, with uh, different symbols of protest uh, as well. And by the way, they were not allowed to continue in the Olympics because of that, that statement that they made. There's also another closed fist. It's older than the black power fist. That's hands are raised in protest to uh, express. See that one? You may have used that one once in a while or had it used against you. Set, that black fist, especially effective when it's sent flying toward the object of the rebellion. Our hands are raised in all sorts of protest. Some of you would be more familiar with this next one than others, but remember the Farewell District 12 salute? Huh? Huh? Katniss, there, come on, give me some, give me some. Give me some over here. Farewell District 12. If you've seen that movie, you know that's a really strong symbol of protest, quiet protest in the movie Hunger Games. But hands are not always raised in protest. Sometimes the most powerful pictures of protest are when they're simply hanging at our side. As in Tiananmen Square. Man standing in front of a tank, hands at his side. It would have been less powerful if he were doing this. Really, the hands at his side saying, go ahead and run over me but you're not going to do anymore what you've been doing here. And do you remember, if you remember the pictures of that, the tanks were trying to get around him, and as it would track over, he would simply move over, stand in front of it. Powerful, powerful statements of protest. And we've seen our hands lifted and used in all sorts of ways. And you're familiar with some of these. You may not, however, be as aware of one of the most extreme acts of rebellion, the extreme acts or use of rebellious hands ever pictured. That was the act of rebellion, the rebellious hands that we celebrate today when we celebrate Jesus on Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. As Christ's hands expressed their call to rebellion simply by grasping the mane of a formerly unwritten unwritten colt jumping on the back of that colt, and carefully holding on while it's led through the streets of Jerusalem, just days before his arrest and crucifixion. That, too, was a great, compassionate, dangerous, generous act of rebellion. In fact, rebellion, the call to change, and the call to resistance, is all over this story of Palm Sunday. The entire triumphal entry was an act of rebellion. Michael earlier read this from a different gospel. Here, I'll read it from Luke because we've been focusing on Luke in this series. Now, last Sunday, Pastor Jeff preached about the central section of Luke 19, the minus. Remember that you were here last week. So I'm gonna read what comes just before that section and what comes just after it to pull it all together. But Jesus is coming into Jerusalem now, riding on on a formerly unwritten colt of a donkey, and he encounters people in Jericho. He's coming down, he's going up to Jerusalem, he goes through Jericho, he enters Jericho, he's passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. So Zacchaeus, the story of Zacchaeus, the story we're going to read is in the context of Palm Sunday. It's Jesus in route. And Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, and he was unable to because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass, Jesus was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Palm Sunday story. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, the people saw this, they all began to grumble saying, he has gone, Jesus has gone to be with the guest of a man. He's going to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stopped and he said to the Lord, behold, Lord, half of my possessions, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, which he certainly had, I will give back four times as much. That's a great return on your oppression. Four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And then you have that section on the minus. So that's the con- context of that that Pastor Jeff preached on last week. And immediately after that, that parable of the minus, you have this in verse 28. Jesus, after he had said these things, he's going on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And then you have him instructing his disciples to go and get the colt. He says, there you're going to enter, grab the colt. If anybody asks you what you're doing with it, you tell them the Lord has need of it. In verse 32, so those who were sent away, they went and found it just as he had told them. Uh, And as they were untying it, indeed, the owners came. And said, why are you untying that colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. And then they brought it to Jesus. And they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. And we tried as best we could to symbolize that a little bit today. Give you a bit of an experience of it with the fabric and the palm branches on the road. Because that's coming up here. They threw their coats on the colt. They threw their coats on. On the road, and as soon as he was approaching near the descent, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with loud voice for the miracles that they had seen. Remember, it hadn't been that long. just recently that they had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And they were shouting things that you might expect to hear after you saw somebody raise a friend from the dead who had been dead a few days. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Rabbi, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to quit praising you like that. And Jesus said, look, if I tell them to be quiet, the very stones under your feet are going to start crying out. And when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. And he said, if you had known Jerusalem in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They're going to penetrate your walls, Jerusalem. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation, your visitation by God. And then Jesus entered the temple. And remember he just got into town and he enters the temple and he drives out those who were selling, saying to them, it's written, my house shall be a house of prayer. You've made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes And the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him and they could not find anything that they might do for all the people were hanging on every word he said. And I put to you today that we just read about a fantastic act of rebellion, a generous act of rebellious hands by our Lord Jesus. The entire triumphal entry was one act of rebellion stacked on another. For instance, you have Jesus rebelling against the advice of his followers when he decided to go to Jerusalem in the first place. He goes against everyone who's close to him when he decides to go to Jerusalem. If you remember, they are arguing, no, why do you want to go to Jerusalem? They're trying to arrest you. They're trying to kill you. We've got a great gig going on here. Let's not go down to Jerusalem. Why go to Jerusalem? One disciple, even Thomas, even says, rolling his eyes, I imagine, are giving up. Giving up. If he's going to go to Jerusalem, then he says, let's go there and die with him. And Jesus hears all that advice. They talked about things. And he resists it. He rebels against it. Jesus also rebels against the assumption not just of his own disciples, but the assumption of the people that he came to serve. You already heard Michael talk a little bit about what palm branches meant meant and what what they symbolized. Palm branches were symbolic of a military liberator in an apocryphal book, 1 Maccabees, which we don't accept as scripture, but we do see it as valuable for for historical uh, insight. It speaks, there's a reference there in 1 Maccabees, speaking of the liberator of, of the Jewish people coming. And when they saw this liberating warrior coming, they offered palm branches to him. No doubt people are thinking that when they see Jesus. They're tying him today with an historical event that meant everything to them. And Jesus, knowing that that's what they're thinking, he rebels by entering on a donkey, the colt of a donkey. Michael also reminded you, when a king would come and showing his military strength, when he was riding into town and you want to be a little cautious seeing him riding up, he would ride a war horse. But historically, we know that a king might not want to always come and be misunderstood. I don't want them to rally their armories and start shooting their arrows if all I want to do is come and talk. So in that case, the king would ride on a donkey, and that was a symbol. He might as well hold up a sign that says, don't shoot, I just want to talk. I'm coming in peace. And that was a practice. Don't ride the war horse in, ride the donkey down. Means, let's not just go shoot first and ask questions later, let's go talk. Let's go have a conversation. And people are, remember, Jesus is a rebel in this story. He's rebelling against the assumptions of the people, and they've got palm branches and coats being laid down like, now it's time to push the red button, baby. Finally, we're getting Rome out of here. Here he comes, Hosanna in the highest, going to kick some serious Roman tail. How many years have we prayed for this? How many? Hey, what's a dude doing on a donkey, man? And he rebels against all of their assumptions, saying, we know now from this side of it, you wanted a war horse, you got a peace horse, but oh my goodness, did you get a war? You wanted a warrior, you got one, not the one you thought you were going to get. You got the king who conquers hearts and frees people. Rides in on a donkey, which was a clear declaration of rebellion to their assumptions, in the face of their assumptions. They wanted a conqueror of Rome. Jesus comes and says, forgive your enemies. You want to conquer Rome? I'll tell you how to conquer Rome. Forgive them. Pray for them. Introduce them to this kingdom that swords can't defeat that's the kind of a conquering king he and but nobody was expecting that except for a few he comes as a reconciler and unlike a warring king you have Jesus nobody would think of a great warlord ever doing this Jesus comes to Jerusalem and what does the text say that he did he wept over Jerusalem i guess they have some sort of a rule if you want to be president of the united states Never cry in public. Everybody remember the last time they saw a president at a debate or talking about some disaster even have to stop like Jeff and I have to stop all the time because they can't talk about Jesus and bam, we're a puddle. We could never get a word. We're done, brother. We'll never live in the White House. (laughs) Presidents don't cry. They, They do cry. But they don't cry in public, right? You ever think about that? But Jesus comes with power that makes the best president ever blush and he sees Jerusalem and the conqueror weeps. He rebels against every, the Israeli people, were, the, the, the Jewish people were not looking for a weeping conqueror. They didn't want someone that felt sorry for Rome. But they got someone who loved Rome. He goes against every assumption of the people, rebels like crazy against them because the entire triumphal entry is an act of rebellion. And Jesus rebels against the religious system into which he comes, into which he was born as well. And its leaders. That was really risky. But he'd been living with risk all along. Jesus finally does, you'll notice, lift his hands in violence and power. He does finally flex his physical muscle. But where does he flex his physical muscle? In the temple. He's barely in town, goes to the temple, and they're doing the temple business and the temple prayers and the temple this and the temple that. And in this temple, you have regulations. And you must, if you sin this way, you must buy a certain kind of pure animal at the temple, on the temple grounds. It's not blessed. It doesn't count for your sacrifice. And if you want to do a bigger sacrifice, you buy a bigger and more expensive animal, but it has to be the temple animal. It's got the temple brand on it. And they overcharge and the scales didn't work particularly well when you did an exchange in the temple sometimes. And Jesus is aware of that. He comes in and he sees folks like many of us wanting to serve God, wanting to be faithful, scratching together whatever they can scratch together to buy this obligatory dove that they're going to sacrifice, paying twice what they should have to pay for it, but they can't buy it at Costco. They have to buy it at the temple. That's the rule. And he sees... Business people taking advantage of that, and he is incensed. Oh, he flexes his muscle. You want a warrior king? I'll give you a warrior king. And he puts together, he fabricates a whip, and he starts raising dust in that temple, turning over chairs and tables and money scattered everywhere, whip flying, you better jump, get out of here. There's the warrior we were looking for, but against them, not against us. He rebels even against his own the abuses of his own religious system and those who were profiting from it. The generous nature of Jesus is all over the story of Palm Sunday. His hands were lifted in open rebellion against just about every expectation and assumption that people made about their Messiah. And those hands seem to have held back very little. Those are hands that were quite generous in their acts of rebellion. The entire triumphal entry, the whole celebration of Palm Sunday is an act of rebellion. And Palm Sunday, not only an act of rebellion, but the triumphal entry calls us to acts of rebellion. Christianity is a baptized rebellion. And it calls us to raise our hands in rebellion. Now it calls us, this Christianity, this savior of ours, calls us to raise our hands in acts of rebellion to many things. and. Man, we could be here for weeks talking about them. I want to focus on a couple because they're the applications that show up in this story. Here's one of the things that Palm Sunday calls us to raise our hands in rebellion against. Rebellion against pressures, number one, pressures to dismiss those who need Jesus most. Sadly, from within the church, there is a, I want to say it's well-intentioned. I'm not sure that's always true. But there is a pressure that Christians put on each other to resist some of the people that need Jesus the most, to to insulate ourselves from some of the people that need Jesus the most, to close those back doors to some of the people who need the message of Jesus and the community of Christ. The kind of friendships we can offer the kind of friends we can be the most. The story of Zacchaeus is a wonderful one for illustrating that. Jesus comes into town, and he sees this guy Zacchaeus, who needs Jesus. I mean, he's he's a guy who has a classic need for the message of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is interested in connecting with him. Zacchaeus is rich, but he's rich by means of oppression. So verse two, there was a man called Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. That was almost, that's almost redundant. He was a chief tax collector, you know that dude was rich. He was rich from stealing from his own people by means of Roman power, that's why he was rich. He was not ethical. And he was probably dominant, this is a guess, but probably true, he was probably dominated by insecurities about his stature, his size. Otherwise, why in the world does Luke even mention his size? He says he was a short. He had to go up the tree because he was short of stature. So you've got this rich guy who oppresses people, who uses the power of the invader to take money from his own people who's, a, who's got some issues of insecurity. But he's also at least curious, and I think more than that, probably spiritually hungry. In verse 4, Zacchaeus runs on ahead and climbs up into a tree in order to see Jesus, for Jesus was about to pass through that way. I don't think he was looking for an autograph. I think there was something inside him saying, you know how this guy gives people life. And he was lonely and rejected by his own community. Sometimes we're pressured to dismiss these people who need Jesus most. And we know he was lonely and rejected by his own community because in verse 7, instead of saying, Oh, how cool, cool, he's having dinner with Zacchaeus. He's our Zacchaeus. He's one of us. The people grumbled. Man, of all the people in this town that the rabbi could have supper with, he sits down with that filthy, stinking, scumbag sinner. Zacchaeus is disgusting to us. And Jesus is going to have dinner with him? But Zacchaeus is a perfect example of the kind of person Jesus came to befriend. And you know, the church is said to be the feet of Jesus and the hands of Jesus. So hear me now. If Zacchaeus is a perfect example for Jesus, then Zacchaeus and folks like Zacchaeus are perfect examples for us of the kind of person Jesus wants to befriend. Because when they grumble, the very... Last part of this text says, today, so Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house because he too, pointing to is Zacchaeus the whole time, he's one of us. He too is a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus, we kicked him out a long time ago. Yeah, well, you can kick him out of the house, but you can't kick him out of your bloodline. He's one of your people. And then he says this, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. In other words, Jesus is saying, (laughs) read my lips. I came for people like this guy. And he wants to say to the church today too, rebel against the pressure that you're getting from other churches and other Christians to insulate yourself from some of the people in the world that need me the most, because they're exactly the ones I came to care for and love. How in the world can a church call itself truly Christian, Christ-like, when it says, like, uh, sometimes a church looks like one of those fancy nightclubs in New York, you know, with a big old line down the street and a big bouncer saying, no, 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 oh, yeah, you dress pretty nice, you could come in. No, 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 oh, you know them? Okay, you're in. You, you see, can you picture that in your mind? Those people are all around us, you know. And Christians are pressuring other Christians to close the church to them at every turn. Rebelled against this evil exclusion. This evil separating, this evil left outness. That so many have been good at dressing as holy sounding things like taking a stand or holiness. Because there's nothing holy at all about saying to somebody who has desperate need for Christ, your choices are too bad and you can't have access to us and you can't have access to the gospel. There's nothing holy about dismissing the people who need the Lord the most. This is not a stand for holiness. This is a stand in practice against holiness. Can I be more clear? We must, we are taught by Palm Sunday, resist the pressure to dismiss, exclude, separate from people who need Jesus the most. And we must resist, rebel against the pressure to comply with people who really love Jesus the least. The rest of that text... In verse 39 and 40, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, silence your worshippers, silence the people that are calling out to you and calling you the Savior. And he says, no, not going to do it. He rebels against their authority. And they're probably all dressed up in their authority outfits, but he rebels against it. And it's public too, and he rebels against it. No, not going to do it. You sound really holy and perfect, but the fact is you've missed the whole point here. In verse 41 and through 44, you have that section where Jesus is prophesying sadly, reluctantly. He's weeping while he's doing, but he's prophesying against the stability and the peace of Jerusalem, at least in the uh, short-term future. It's going to be awful for you, Jerusalem. That's not a popular stand to take. In verse 45 and 46, you have the reference to him disrupting those who were profiting and taking advantage of the situation of people in the temple where they had to buy your animal in order to go make a sacrifice that was considered a pure sacrifice. And so you jacked up the price. And he comes and he he rebels against that and turns that whole place over. And then this could be missed, but I was intrigued by this. The last couple verses, verse 47 and 48, let me read them again because The pressure is to comply with those who actually love Jesus the least and resist those who need Jesus the most. But look at what Jesus is doing. Now, remember the context. He is not Mr. Popular among some of the religious leaders. Actually, the majority probably were at least favorable toward him. But in verse 47, it says, And he was teaching daily in the temple. This is the same temple that he just messed up. And he's still teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. Strong words. But they could not find anything that they might do for all the people were hanging on every word he said. Picture this. Jesus comes in, has prophesied against Jerusalem, has turned over the temple, has called out just about everybody who made their living from the temple. And then he has the strength of character, the gall, some might say, the rebellious heart to sit down in that very same temple every day and teach there. Wait, it's better. I find it a bit intimidating to go into a room like this where people pretty much love me, or at least haven't said they didn't, and teach. It's quite another thing to stand up here and teach in a room full of people, many of whom would just as soon have the privilege of cutting out the tongue with which you teach and every day Jesus was in their teaching. That's the heart of the rebel. That's a dangerously generous rebellion. We have pressures on us as a church, and we must rebel against them. Palm Sunday begs us to. Against the pressure to exclude folks just because they need to be included the most. The pressure to yield to people who are so hardline and insensitive, that you never get the feeling they would ever cry over Jerusalem, weep over the very people with whom they disagree the most. Resist those pressures as a church, otherwise be doomed to irrelevance and deserve it. You know, sometimes the people who are the most boisterous in their promotion of religion are among those who love the center of that religion the least. They love the creator of that religion the least, sometimes, not always. Palm Sunday reminds us that we must resist, that we must rebel lavishly against the pressures to bow to those folks. Now, with every one of these messages, we have been reminding you that that the series is not just called Generosity, it's called Dangerous Generosity. This is a dangerous generosity of hands, focusing on the idea of rebellion, learning from some of the events of Palm Sunday. But this is also a dangerous generosity. His entrance into Jerusalem is a call to generous acts of redemptive redemptive rebellion, but responding to that call is dangerous. It will cost you, so think twice before you do it. It'll cost us a lot. Here are a couple of things that I would focus on. Now, the first one is rather delicate, and man, tomorrow I I might think it was a bad idea to even bring it up, but here we go. And I mean, well, let's, here we go. One of the things this could cost, which makes it so terribly dangerous, this will cost you, for those of you who are parents, it will cost you the fantasy of easy, painless parenting. There is no such thing as easy, painless parenting. I think there might have been a time where there was easier, a little less painless parenting. But that ain't now. And you see how this works? When the church's doors are open to those who have greatest need for Jesus and they're invited to be part of the Christian community. And then for instance, on a Sunday morning when we're worshiping as a community, they feel invited to come and seek Jesus with us and make friends with us and drink the coffee we brew. And sometimes they bring their kids with them to the children's programs where your kids are. And then when your kid comes back from church and says, Mommy, how come Johnny has two dads instead of a daddy and a mommy? Or how come Sally and her mommy sleep in her car? You know what you're actually going to have to do? You're, You're going to have to parent your kids through those questions. And that's not easy. Because here's where we're stuck, folks. We're stuck on the one hand with the pillar of truth. We do not have the privilege given to us by God to just change the biblical facts and what's true so that it's easier to deal with what we're experiencing in the world. We do not. That's a solid pillar. Nor do we have the option to throw people away. Because the Bible also says, as certainly as it says, do not compromise truth. Here's what's true. The Bible is it's authoritative in these things. It also says, reach everybody. Don't throw anybody away. So somewhere in between these two non-negotiables, the church is called to live. Now listen, that's pretty challenging. It's always been challenging. It's pretty challenging today, just as it was in the New Testament times. Don't you feel honored that God, think about it this way, honored all the options God had to put somebody in some church. In the middle of that, he chose you. He chose us to live with that, those kinds of demands. But we don't have the privilege of changing the fact, changing the truth, or throwing people away. What we do get to do is depend upon God to give us the wisdom to figure out how to live in between those two tensions. And it means, for instance, when we're parenting our children or helping our grandchildren make sense of the world or our nieces and nephews or even friends, Man, if we're going to not throw people away and everybody's open to come and hear the gospel and part of our community, as friends at least, all kinds of crazy things come up and we're going to need to be parents. So we're not going to fix that problem by let's just take these verses out of the Bible and change it. Okay, no more problem now. We're not going to fix that problem by saying, let's just lock down the place and vet everybody through this standard, this standard, this standard. Have you done this sin, this sin, this sin, this? We're not going to do that because the Bible doesn't give us that option. What it does give us the option to do is trust, think, learn, parent, guide, connect. My son David, I've told you this story before, but some of you have not heard it because you, you, were, you were skiing that Sunday a junior high or high school. He came, we were living in Colorado. He comes in the garage. He says, Dad, I've I'm, I'm, I'm got a problem. What's your problem? I said, I have a friend at school, and my friend said he doesn't like girls. He likes guys, and he's still my friend. Okay, well, what's the problem? Well, the Christians in our youth group, and I was the pastor of the church, won't have lunch with me now because they told me that I was um, compromising my faith. I wasn't a Christian anymore because I was still this guy's friend because I was having lunch with him. What would you do? Well, he's my friend. I still had lunch with him, but I feel torn. Well, time to parent. Okay, now next point. (laughs) So I I said, David, you did the right thing. But am I compromising my faith? No, you did the right thing. You would have been compromising your faith by rejecting him. Uh, and that's where we had a conversation about how it's important to learn to that the kindness you show to someone doesn't mean you agree with them or affirm every decision they made. So you can be great friends and Christ-like and loving with people with whom you have severe disagreement on issues, including theological issues, which you obviously do. And from that conversation right there in our garage came our little family saying that I've said a thousand times here, that the, right up to David, I said, the only prerequisite for being treated with dignity is being human. Kindness does not equal endorsement. And that's a kind of, uh, that's not bad, huh? That's pretty good of parenting, yeah. <laughs> However, I gotta tell you, I'm like one for a thousand with that one because so many mistakes. <laughs> It's just, we, we've got to cinch it up and be parents because we're not going to throw people away. And that means that our kids are going to be exposed to things they're not ready for. What? Didn't happen here for the first time, folks. And we've got to get them through this. And we've got to trust in God that he's going to give us the wisdom that when we do the right thing and deal with the right stuff and do, deal delicately, and, and we have these precious children that we don't want them to have to deal with things they're not ready for, but they have, they are, and they will. They will we better step it up as parents and go deep enough as Christians to be able to step it up as parents. All right, enough on that one. It could cost us the fantasy of easy and painless parenting. And watch out for this too. You know, some folks use the need to protect our kids as an argument for restricted access to the church and her message. Be careful with that. We need to rebel against such blatantly unbiblical logic as that. But it's going to hurt. It'll cost you. Second thing it could cost you, and this is it. It will cost you this living with this kinds of dangerous generosity and rebellion. It will cost you the pseudo-calm that comes with passivity. There's a calm that comes with being passive, but it's a fake calm. It's a pseudo calm, it's not really calm. It's passivity. It's getting nothing going, you got nothing to worry about. But I'll tell you, it's worth it. Because when we live with open access to everything that comes at us in this crazy space, and enough confidence as Christians and followers of Jesus, dependers upon the Holy Spirit, worshipers from being dizzy all week long, we come to get, we live like that. You're going to be so excited about the adventure you're going to be on with real people, with real questions, with real challenges that demand real thinking, that actually really love you and appreciate the conversation you'll have with them. You're going to be so excited about the adventure of hanging out with people that are, on, that are in real-life situations. You're never going to want to go back. They're hungry for truth. They're hungry for a friend. They're hungry for authenticity. They're hungry for Jesus. And there's nothing that lights your fire like being around folks like that or theirs. You'll never be able to return to that safe sameness that comes with pseudo calm and passivity. Here's the danger. You won't have any more calm if you decide to live the life of a rebel. None, but you will have peace. And I'll trade away calm for peace any day. So this is a dangerous choice to make. It's going to cost us, but it's worth it. Some of the great hands that our times have seen are hands that have been raised in rebellion but they all pale when compared to the greatest hands of all time because this is the ultimate rebellion. This is what dangerous generosity looks like when it comes in the form of rebellion. These are hands, the hands of Christ, that knew something about extreme rebellion. Those are hands that knew how to do generously. And here's the question I'll leave you with today. Shouldn't we join our hands with those hands? Shouldn't we follow Jesus into the world in active rebellion against a faith that's content with burying its nose in the Bible without also lifting its hands out of its pockets, shouldn't that be rebelled against? I end with the words of James. Faith, if it has no works, is dead. It's all by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith without the works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Rebel. Have enough with it. Let's pray. Now God caress us with those same hands that bled so well. That started the week holding on to a pony. And end of the week holding ended holding on to a cross. Show us clearly what needs to be opposed. And then strengthen us. To oppose it while we cling to follow and yield to you. In the name of Christ we pray.